There's this old saying. It's a quote by Philo of Alexandria. It goes like this. Be kind, everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. I think about that a lot. And for me, I, I guess I think of the first two words the most. Be kind. Because the truth is, the people in your life who you meet that you feel the least like being kind to are probably the people who need you to be kind the most, you know? And there's a Canuck sweatshirt in the fourth row also. Okay, so here we go. Uh, just coming at me from all angles. As I was preparing to talk to you today, it wasn't the first two words that hit me, it was the end of the quote. Everyone you meet, because we're meeting here today, right? Like our paths have intersected today. Everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And it really hit me. Like every single person in here is fighting a great battle. It's interesting because everyone's great battle is different. Like what might be a great battle for you is not a great battle for me. What might be a great battle for you might not be a great battle for him. For some people it's battling with the past, you know? trying to move past that regret and that shame and that guilt of yesterday, but never feeling like you can. Or, or maybe it's scars from the past that have left you with this notion that maybe you're damaged beyond repair. Everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. For some people it's not battle, it's more like battles. I talked to a young man this week and he said, man, it's just been one thing after another, after another, after another to the point that he's walking around in his life with this like nine out of 10 stress level, you know? So his Wi-Fi stops working and he breaks down in tears and he can't figure out why. Well, it's because everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. For some, it's a medical battle. You're struggling with a sickness. For others, uh, you were sick like two years ago, but today you're walking around with this anxiety that even though you're healthy, that you might get sick again. For some, it's relational, it's family battles. For some, it's financial or emotional or educational. But, but the truth is, everyone you meet, including you, including me, is fighting a great battle. And this series, for me, to tell you the honest truth, this is my attempt to be kind. Because there's something I know about you, and it's true for me also, the battles that we're facing in our lives today and the battles that we will face in our lives this year are more than we can handle, more than we can breeze through on our own. I want to suggest to you in this series that we need God's help, that it's really important. Have you ever heard that phrase, hindsight is 2020? Hindsight is 2020. That's kind of interesting, right, because we're in the year 2020. And what, what I was thinking when I think about hindsight is 2020, when we're looking back at 2020 in hindsight, at the end of it, I think we're going we're gonna to be able to say one or two things. Number one, I fought all this year for victory. There were battles that I was fighting, and I fought them in 2019 and 2018 and 2017 and 2016, and, and, and I was just battling, fighting and fighting and fighting for victory, never quite feeling like I grasped it. Or I, I want to suggest to you that we can look back at 2020 and say, you know what, in 2020, maybe for the first time, I fought from victory instead of for victory that I finally figured out that there was a God who was absolutely, completely for me and with me. And I don't have to fight for victory, I can fight from his victory.
And I know I've been talking a lot in this series about posture, because I think posture is important. Because I think our posture really determines the degree to which God's power plays out in our battles. And so overarchingly in this series, what I'm trying to suggest is that we have a posture of faith, a, a posture of humility, a posture of expectancy. And I, and I really do believe that's why it's so important that we make it a priority to be here together on a Sunday. I'm not saying a Sunday is more important than a Wednesday or a Thursday, but I, but I am saying that when we come together with a posture of faith and expectancy and enthusiasm, that's a posture that we can carry with us throughout the week. Be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. So we're talking about posture from the perspective of this Old Testament life story, a guy named Samuel lived 3,100 years ago. And we know we're nearing the end of his study because over the last two weeks we've talked about Samuel's death and funeral. So you know we're kind of getting to the conclusion of a life story. Anyways, okay, so. <laughs> but Samuel does come up one more time in the Bible in one of the weirdest stories that you've ever heard. And I'm really glad that Samuel comes up one more time because I think God's gonna use this weird story to give us the launching pad to live this year 2020 fighting from victory instead of for it. So let me set the stage for you. Samuel has died, but King Saul is still the king of Israel and it's fa- he's facing his old nemesis, the Philistines. They're about to do battle. And, and the truth is, listen, Saul has spent his whole life choosing confusion over clarity. By the way, if you're struggling with direction, if you're struggling with decisions this year, I really want to suggest that if you were not here last week, you take a second to go back to last week's sermon where we talked about the difference between choosing confusion and choosing clarity. Saul has spent most of his life choosing confusion. Now he really wants clarity and he can't find it. And he's panicked. The Bible says his heart is filled with terror. We'll pick up the story there. For Samuel 28. Saul ordered his officials... Find me someone who can call up spirits so I may go and seek counsel from those spirits. It is kind of a weird story, I told you. Listen, his servant said, there's a witch at Endor. Great, so Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes. Then taking two men with him, he went under the cover of night to the woman and said, I want you to consult a ghost for me. Call up the person I name. The woman said, just hold on now. You know what Saul did? How he swept the country clean of mediums. Why are you trying to trap me and get me killed? Saul swore solemnly. If you're Saul, of course you would swear solemnly. Okay, as God lives, you won't get in any trouble for this. The woman said, well, who do you want me to bring up? Samuel. Bring me Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out loudly to Saul. Why did you lie to me, your Saul? It's really funny, the end, because I think the witch of Endor is a little bit of a scam artist. I can tell that because she's been living her life telling people that she can talk to spirits, but when one actually shows up, she freaks out. But there's something real interesting about the picture that we get in this passage about King Saul. And it's amazing to me because I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. Later on in this same conversation, Saul finds out that he has one day to live. And I got to say to you, what a way to go. <laughs> like in, in, in a life that started so promising, it seems to be ending so pitifully. From promising to pitiful. 
Look at the picture that we get here of Saul. Saul is dressed up in a disguise so that he can break a law that who came up with in the first place? Him. (laughs) He's dressed up to break a law that he came up with in the first place. Baba said his heart is filled with terror. So Saul has blown way past feeling fear and he's now in a state of being afraid. His heart is filled with terror. Remember the first time we met Saul? Maybe you don't. I'll tell you, when they anointed Saul to be king, the Bible says that he stood head and shoulders above everyone else in the nation of Israel. That, that, that actually he was the best looking guy in the whole country. So here's Saul, and he, he, he was a warrior's warrior, a man's man, a warrior king. And now his heart is filled with terror. He went from promising to pitiful. And maybe the weirdest part of this whole story is the fact that Saul, listen to this, Saul is breaking God's law in order to consult with God's prophet, a prophet who, by the way, he largely disregarded when that prophet was alive. Saul is breaking God's law in order to consult with a prophet who he largely disregarded when that prophet was alive. So how did Saul go from so promising to so pitiful? If you ask me to put it in a word, the word that I would choose would be sin. Sin. You say, yeah, but it's so weird. You know, that's why G.K. Chesterton said this about sin. It is always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls, only one at which one stands. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls. Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, defines sin this way. She said, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. (laughs) So we're going to have fun today. We're going to talk about sin. Doesn't that sound exciting? We're going to put the fun back in fundamentalists today at Southside Church. Okay, so I do believe, though, that I'm going to share with you, I'm going to speak to you today about sin in a way that you've never heard anyone speak to you about sin before. I actually believe that the conversation that we have around sin over this next three weeks, by the way, is going to propel you to a powerful 2020. It's going to change the way you think of sin. It's actually even going to change the way that you speak about sin or speak with somebody else about sin. So G.K. Chesterton was right. There are an infinity of angles at which one can fall. But I want to suggest to you that there are only three common temptations that lead to the infinity of angles at which one falls. Three temptations that can lead us into sin. They're illustrated in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Jesus has been baptized. He goes out to the wilderness for 40 days. It says this, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry, obviously. The tempter came to him and said, hey, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, 
It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. There are an infinity number of angles at which one can fall, but really there's only three common temptations that lead to those infinity of angles. 1 John 2 puts it this way. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, listen, the lust of the flesh, turn these stones into bread. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, hey, just bow down and worship me, and this enti- all these kingdoms will be yours. And the pride of life, hey, throw yourself down from the temple. The angels will grab you, and everybody will know who you are. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. There are an infinity of angles at which one can fall, but there's three common temptations that lead to the infinity of angles. The pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. I like the message paraphrase of that passage. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. The world and all its wanting and wanting and wanting is on its way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Sin. There's an infinity of angles at which one can fall. But there's three common temptations that lead to the fall. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I want to talk to you about sin in a way that I think you've never heard before. And I want to talk to you from the perspective of posture. So in this series, I've tried to get real practical. You know, like in week one, we talked about a sociological posture. That when we live around other people, we can choose to look at them, compare ourselves to them, and, and live in jealousy. Or we can choose to lift our eyes up and look at a heavenly father who made me, me. Who made you, you. Who gave us every gift and every ability and every opportunity that we have and live a life that says thank you. In week two, we talked about a chronological posture that we learned from the past, but we live in the now, in the present. You know, we make every day our masterpiece, and then, and then, we, and then we stack a masterpiece on top of a masterpiece, on top of a masterpiece, and next thing you know, we're shaping the future. We, we learn from the past, we live in the present, we shape the future. And then last week, we talked about a directional posture, right? We can choose confusion if we want, or we can choose clarity. Over these next three weeks, I want to talk to you about a posture of blessing. I want to talk to you about a posture of blessing. Because sometimes I hear conversations that people have about sin and they don't make a lot of sense to me. Both inside and outside the church. I hear people say stuff like this. Sin is bad. And if you sin, you're bad. Good people don't do that. Bad people do that. Sin is bad. Like we teach our kids in Sunday school sometimes, be careful little feet where you go. 
Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because someone's watching. It's this concept of sin is bad. I would refer to it as guilt-based righteousness. In other words, if I tell you that you're bad enough times, you're gonna become good. I don't think that works. Like, I don't think, that, it's never worked for me. I remember when I was in grade four, sitting at my cubicle in science class, okay? I had a compass from my geometry set, and I was scratching bad words on my cubicle. That's the truth. But what I didn't know is that my science teacher, my grade four science teacher, was standing behind me the entire time. Okay, so I got detention for a month of lunch hours. It's ridiculous when you think about it, but I did. I got a, a one month detention, okay? So why are you telling us this story? I don't know. It doesn't really have a point. I just wanted you to know that. But here's, okay, but, but, but listen, the very first lunch hour of detention, <coughs> my science teacher uh, gets me sanding all the cubicles, right? And, and I had to repaint them, okay? And, and then he's walking out the door to lead me to my work, and the last thing he says to me before he closes the door is this. He says, on my desk is a tray of dry ice, don't touch it. What do you think I did? I did the same thing that you would have done. I went over and the first thing I did, as soon as that door closed, I touched the dry ice. It hurt, okay? So, so but, but, but I don't really believe that telling people over and over and over again that they're bad helps them become good. The, the other discussion that I've seen around sin, both inside and outside the church, I would refer to it as peer pressure righteousness. Sin is for losers. Sin is not cool. Sin is nerdy. Sin is not fun. So let's stop there for a second. Sin is not fun. Can I tell you something? If sin is not fun, you're not doing it right. See, because the truth is, like, here's the thing about temptation. Temptation is, I'm trying to think of the word. Temptation is, yes, I, 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 temptation is by its very nature, what? Tempting. Temptation is tempting. So to, so to tell people, temptation isn't tempting, you loser, I don't think that helps. I don't think it's true. Because I'll tell you, when my science teacher closed his door, it was like a gravitational pull to that stupid tray of dry ice. I don't think it helps to tell people that temptation is not tempting. I want to talk over these next three weeks. I want to talk about being in a posture of blessing. So let's talk about God's plan. God's plan. So let's just say, I don't know why, I do, you can't even see this, but right here, I'm standing in a rectangle. First service, I called it a square, okay? Well, there's a mat covering it, and I just need to see the, okay, so here I am. Here's the boundary. I called this a square in the first service, okay? But it's not a square, it's a rectangle, okay? That's what it is. So I'm in a rectangle, and uh, let's call this God's plan. God has a plan for you. I know that, for sure. 100% convinced of it. God has a plan for you. How would I describe God's plan for you? Well, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So God's plan. How, okay, how would it? Prosperity, protection, hope, and future. Okay, so here I am on this little rectangle called God's plan. Prosperity, protection, hope, and future. 
Um, Psalm 37 verse 4 says, when you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. So here I am, I'm standing on this rectangle called God's plan. Uh, Provision, protection, hope, future, uh, desires of my heart, joy, right? Psalm 23 says this, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want fulfillment. He leads me beside, or he, he, he leads me, green pastures, green pastures, help me. He makes me lie down in green pastures, rest, rest. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So here I am, I'm in this rectangle called God's plan. What is it? It's provision, protection. It's hope, it's future. It's the desires of my heart, it's joy. It's fulfillment. It's rest and restoration. So can I summarize that whole thing by saying blessing? Now I wanna be really careful the way I explain that because I really believe that you can be in a place of blessing and still be bruised once in a while. Do you understand what I mean? Like at the core of who I am, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. God's providing. I have hope, but I'm still hurt at times. But, but overarchingly at, at the soul level, here I am and it's this rectangle and it's called God's plan. Provision, protection, hope, future, joy, delight, desires of my heart, rest, fulfillment, blessing. Right here. So what's temptation? Well, temptation's really simple. I'm standing here in a posture of blessing. Temptation says, are you crazy? <laughs> Don't you feel a little cramped? Right? Like you're, you're, you're in this little closet called God's plan. Isn't it a little constricting? Isn't it a little bit oppressive? Isn't it a little bit repressive? Like, don't you hate it? Temptation says, come on out. The weather's fine. The living is free. Okay? So leave, leave repression, step into freedom. That's temptation. And these next three weeks, I want to talk to you about the three kinds of temptations that lead us into an infinite number of angles at which we can fall. Okay? Today, I want to talk about the lust of the flesh. So the lust of the flesh says, are you crazy? (laughs) You don't don't feel a little cramped in there because that's insane. So step out. Step out. And you do. (sighs) Oh, man. It's cramped in there, you know? And at first, it it is free and it it is good. And then you notice, well, that beautiful landscape of that freedom, that mountainscape, well, it's actually a painting. See, I thought it was real. And, and, uh, and it's smoke and it's mirrors, and, 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 and it's, starting to, it's starting to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and, and this is what I realized. I realized that that wasn't a closet. You know what it was? It was a wardrobe. So I told you about my grade four year. Can I tell you about my grade five year? In my grade five year, I had the best teacher in history, Mrs. Bass, and on the first day of school, she opened up a book to read to us, and I'll never forget that book. The book was called The Lion the witch, and the wardrobe. And this little girl named Lucy, you should, if you haven't read it, read it. But this little girl named Lucy, she walks into this closet, this wardrobe, and all of a sudden there's all these fur coats, and she starts walking in further, and the fur coats become like pine branches, and there's snow underneath her feet, and she's walked into this world called Narnia, you know? And, 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 and what she realizes, there's a whole world in there. Adventure and hope and joy and strength and blessing. 
but I'm out here now, and it's getting real tight. And sin says, oh, <laughs> yeah, um, th- that, that is a wardrobe, and there is no way back. That is a wardrobe. That is blessing. Oh, it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always fun, but, but that was blessing. And there's no way back. You stepped out. That's your problem. There's no way back. And you know what? That's actually true. And it's false. I'll talk about that more in a couple minutes, but I'm going to talk about the lust of the flesh. About seven months ago, I went to see a Christian counselor. I'm going to trip on this, so I'll just fix it again now. There we go. I went to see a Christian counselor. I said, I'm feeling a little bit exhausted. I feel a little bit wrung out, you know? Kind of stressed all the time. You're like, Mike, is this your therapy session? No, but he told me something really cool that I think will help you too. He said, you've been living your whole adult life uh, running on a, a, adrenaline. Adrenaline. You remember from high school science class, adrenaline is like fight or, fight or flight, right. And, and, and you can relate. Every single person here, you can relate to some degree. Somewhere along the, the, the path of your life, uh, you've faced some trauma. Maybe when you were five years old or seven years old or nine years old or 21 years old or 27 years old, I don't know when exactly it was, but you faced trauma. And I might look at your trauma and say, that's not even traumatic. It doesn't really matter. What was traumatic for you was trauma. And something inside of you has decided that there's more trauma around every corner. And so you're in a constant adrenaline state, fight or flight. In, in, in fact, I really believe our whole culture, more than any culture in human history, by the way, is fueled by adrenaline. You say, well, how can you prove that, Mike? I can't really, but let's imagine, too, that adrenaline is fight or flight, fight or flight, fight or flight, fight or flight, right? Fight or flight. If it was true that our culture runs on adrenaline, what would be the two overarching emotions that I would see play out in our culture more than, if we run on fight or flight, what would be the two emotions? Fight, fight, fight. Anger and fear or anxiety. That's it. Because here's my question for you. Look around. You see any anger? You see any anxiety? And so here we are in this place called God's plan, but in the midst of it, like there's, there's bruises and there's bumps and there's challenge and there's trauma and there's fight and there's flight and there's anger and there's anxiety. And the lust of the flesh says, come on up. You feed your flesh, you'll find rest for your soul. You feed your flesh, you'll find rest for your soul. And so as a culture, to, to a larger degree, we've chose, um, we've blown past fight and flight, anger, anxiety, we've chosen to numb. So in other words, if, 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 if I can numb my flesh, I will find rest for my soul. So one of my counselors said, um, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I never chose the numbing route. He says because you've got a real overactive part of your brain, which is the cost-benefit analysis part of your brain. That I'm constantly asking myself, how does that story end? 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 But it's still not overly helpful because you're still running on adrenaline. Your heart is about to say, I'm done. But as a culture, we're in here 
And the lust of the flesh says, man, if you could just numb your flesh, you would find rest for your soul. How do you numb your flesh? I don't know, sex, porn. For some people who have faced extreme trauma in, our, in their lives, they'll actually cut themselves, thinking that by, by doing stuff on the outside that they'll somehow fix what's broken on the inside. Alcohol, drugs, food, or, 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 or lack thereof. For some people, it's like binge-watching TV to the degree that they can finally place themselves in an almost catatonic state. And Jesus said, come to me if you are weary or burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. The message paraphrase says it this way, you will find a real rest. In other words, what Jesus is interested in, he's interested in healing the core part of you that's causing the fight and the flight and the anger and anxiety, and it takes time, and it's a process, and it can even be painful. And there's the lust of the flesh out there going, are you crazy? This is taking way too long. What are you waiting for? We walk out here, <laughs> and we numb our flesh and we thought we were going to find rest for our soul but what happened is we hurt our soul instead and then sin says there's no way back it's like someone who struggles with isolation and loneliness and so they turn to pornography and the truth is for a while they, they do they numb their flesh but you know the people who are regular invo regularly involved in pornography, it actually changes the chemical makeup of your brain. We're, we're, listen, because this is crazy. Where you become less able to become intimate with real people, to make connections with real people, to know and be known by real people, to love and be loved by real people. And therefore, at the end of it, you are more angry, you are more anxious, you are more isolated, you are more lonely than you were at the start. And then sin says, <laughs> there's no way back. Here's my problem with sin. My problem with sin is, that, is, is not that I'm gonna stand up here today and say this to you. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad. Be good, because that doesn't work. It's stupid. My problem with sin isn't like, hey, hey loser, temptation isn't tempting. Figure it out, because that's a lie. The only problem that I have with sin today is this. It doesn't work. That's the only problem. It doesn't work. It, it promises us rest for our soul, but what it does instead is it numbs the flesh and hurts the soul. Sometimes people will use food or lack thereof or whatever it is, and obviously there's nothing wrong with food. There's nothing wrong with a diet. But ask somebody who's tried to numb themselves through food how, how that works for them. Um, I talked to a group of young adults the other day, and they were saying how even in, even in the church, how, how amazing it is and how rare it is uh, for single people not to be having sex. And that makes sense to me, actually. That makes perfect sense to me. Because, 
because if sin works, it should be sexapalooza. So I'm here. I mean, this place of blessing, but it's hard sometimes. It's challenging sometimes. And, 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 and sometimes there's anger and sometimes I'm anxious. And I gotta turn to somewhere. And there's only one of two places I'm gonna turn. I'm gonna turn to creator or created. Does that make sense? I'm gonna turn to creator or I'm gonna turn to created. If I decide to turn to created, I'm almost always gonna end up in sexual sin. Because if you look at the story of creation, what was the pinnacle of God's creation? People. He created people, man and woman, in his image. So if sin works, sex a palooza. Sex before marriage, sex during marriage, sex outside of marriage, sex after marriage. Let's get with it. The only problem is, it doesn't work. Because sex is actually a gift that God created for people. And it's a, it's a whole life connection. Not just physical, but like mind, will, emotions, a soul level connection made for a soul level commitment called marriage. My overarching problem with sin is to stand up here today and tell you, you're bad. You're a loser, temptation isn't tempting. No, my my only problem with sin is that it doesn't work. You numb the flesh, you hurt the soul. That's an issue. So here I am. God's plan, you know. Provision, protection. Hope in a future. Desires in my heart, joy. Fulfillment. Restoration. Rest. Blessing. I'm in this place of blessing. And at some point, you and you and me, at some point, we stepped out. We just did. Temptation was tempting. <laughs> you know? And we got out here, and then sin says, oh, hey, yeah, it turns out it was a wardrobe. It's blessing, and it's hope, and it's future, and it's joy, and it's strength, and there's no way back. And it's true, and it's false. In my own strength, of the standard for sitting in that, in that place, in God's plan, his perfection, I can't get there from here but we sang a song earlier called uh, Waymaker that Jesus Christ the son of God stepped into human history and where there seems to be no way for me he made a way he is the way in John 14 Jesus was describing uh, the blessed life to his disciples you know like real life that starts now and stretches into eternity and I think it was Thomas looked at Jesus and said well what's the way there we'd like to go there Jesus said I am the way. That Jesus stepped into human history and he, he lived, he died, and rose again to make a way. Right back here. And then right back here. And then right back here. Over and over and over again in 2020, here's what I think I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep posturing myself in a place of blessing. I read you a quote earlier from G.K. Chesterton. Actually, I only wrote, read you the beginning, so let me read the whole thing now. He said, It's always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls, 
but only one at which one stands. But to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure. And in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages. The dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling tall and straight. The wild truth reeling tall and straight. The wild truth reeling tall and straight. Postured for blessing. But I'm out here. Yeah, same. But there's a way back. His name is Jesus, and he loves you so much. Why don't we close? If, if you don't mind, let's take a moment of personal reflection. If you just bow your head and close your eyes, that'd be great. So I don't know where you're at. I do know this, though, that you're fighting a great battle. And, and, and sometimes in life, maybe even today, you have come to realize that you've tried all kinds of things to find rest for your soul. But today I'm telling you that uh, Jesus came not to just numb your flesh, but to heal what's broken inside of you, give you a hope and a future, joy and a blessing. And it's not about what you've done. It's about what he did. He died for you. He rose again for you. You don't have to spend one more second fighting your own battle. So I just want to ask you right now, if today is the day that you want to ask Jesus to provide real rest for your soul, with all heads bowed and all eyes closed. Can you just raise your hand because I want to pray for you right now. Nice and high if you don't mind. That's awesome. 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 Amazing. You can put your hands down. If you just raised your hand, I'm going to pray out loud and I just ask that you pray along with me if you just raised your hand or maybe you were going to raise your hand and you didn't because you, anyways, just pray along with me. God, thank you that you have a plan for every single person here. And the truth is, man, like, words can't even express how much you love us. The plans that you have for us. So today, Jesus, I ask you to be my savior. I hand you my guilt and my shame and my regret and my sin. And I pray for a clean slate. I thank you for a clean slate. And today, Jesus, I ask you to be my Lord. I want to follow you one next step at a time in this adventure, in this life that I was born to live that starts now and stretches into eternity. And God, for every single person here, for those who have been in Christians for, for months or years, God, I just pray that 2020 would be a year that we just keep following the way back, keep following the way back, keep following the way back to a posture of blessing. We're so thankful that you're with us and you're for us. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. I love you, but my love has conditions. Go vote on Instagram. Come on, man, I'm getting killed. Hey, thanks so much for watching today. Why don't you come join us at any of our four Sunday services? We meet at Sardis Secondary School in Chilliwack, British Columbia. And for more info, you can visit southsidelife.com.